We're going to try to get through up to chapter 8, at least the middle of chapter 8, because where we left off in chapter 6, the rest of the chapter is really just a summary of where we've gotten to up to this point. Um, As you'll see in chapter, uh, in verse 14, you're going to see a genealogy begin, and then at the end of the chapter, it it will restate what it just said in verses 12 and 13. So uh, we're really going to be focusing most of our time on chapter 7, and then the beginning of chapter 8 tonight, uh, the first and second plagues, uh, time allowing, obviously. Um, And then Chris will pick up from where we leave off tonight next week. Um, So let's dive in. Chapter 6, verse 14. These are the heads of their father's houses, speaking of Aaron and Moses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Morari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. <laughs> There's pretty funny names. Uh, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. And then it goes on. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Zithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, we'll find out more about Korah later, but uh, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, Abiasaph, these are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Petuel, and she bore him Phinehas, which we'll meet him later on as well in the book of Numbers. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. So it kind of is a, uh, verses 14 to, you know, basically the end of the chapter is one big parenthetical statement. Um, <clears throat> they want to set up uh, from the get-go who these people, Moses and Aaron, are. Uh, this is their lineage. This is why God called them. They are of the children of Israel. God has called them out. And then it actually it goes on beyond and, and tells us about Aaron's grandson, uh, Phinehas. So we know that this was written at least after these events. They're, it's not like Moses is running back and, and in his diary writing down what happened, and that's what we have as Exodus. We know that most, of the, or most people believe that this was all written when Moses was, or the majority was written when Moses was meeting with the Lord. He was giving him the, the revelation that we've come to know as the first five books of the Bible. Um, so let's continue on and just finish out the chapter, because as I said, this is just a summation of where we've gotten to at this point. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. So they're making it very clear. Yeah, not Moses Jones, Moses, Moses, you know, like not Moses Malone, this Moses. They're very specific about which Moses and Aaron they are. And it, it, I find it funny. A lot, a lot of times the Bible will restate things. And we're like, why does it say this again? It's because it's really important and they're pointing it out. I, I kind of look at this section of scripture as like when you come, come on to a show and they say previously on 
you know, and that's kind of what these verses are like, because they say, you know, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, and then they just say exactly what was said a couple verses earlier in chapter 6, um, in verse 12. And then it goes on and says, On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And that's where we left off uh, earlier in chapter 6 last week. And Moses, give, it says that the Lord, in verse, back in verse 13, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And now in chapter 7, we're going to see what God actually said. So let's move right into chapter 7. That was easy, right? 16 verses, just like that. Amazing. Um, Chapter 7, verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, so this is the charge that it said at the end of chapter, uh, or I should say in chapter 6, verse 13, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So it's important that we note as we saw in the genealogy, people were living longer at this point. We know Moses dies at 120, and it says that his uh, natural forces were not abated and his eye was not dimmed. So he actually, he went in very good health. He, you know, it was, his time was up and God took him. Uh, but it says that he had not really shown any signs of age at the age of 120. We see these, his great-grandfather and so on, 137. So if you want to calculate it by assuming a 70-year lifespan or 75-year lifespan that we see, on average, uh, they're probably in their mid to late 40s at this point. So um, we don't want to picture some guys with canes walking into Pharaoh saying, let our people go. We have to picture Moses uh, in, in this state when we see 80, 83 years old. But what's interesting, though, even if they were in their mid 40s, um, a lot of times I think we, we look at life and we say, you know, I do this all the time. I'm like, I'm 31. I need to know what I'm doing by now. Why am I not doing what God has called me to do yet? Uh, you know, Chuck Smith, the one who founded Calvary Chapels, I think he was 40 when, or 43 or I forget how old, but in his 40s when he founded Calvary Chapel. And he had, you know, been a part of various different churches and nothing had really succeeded. Uh, you know, he had kind of planted a church here and moved on and this and that. But you would never think like, oh, Chuck Smith wasted the first 40 years of his life. But it was part of God's plan for him to plant a church when he's 40s and, and to, for that church to expand all over the world ultimately. Um, so just, an, just a side note, an encouragement to, to you and to myself as well. If you feel like you haven't quite reached the potential that God has, has for you, he might, he might be just saying, wait, you know, that it, you're, you don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what next year holds. So just because you look at yourself in the mirror and there may be more gray hairs or more wrinkles doesn't mean that God's done. It might, he might just be getting started in your life, which is an exciting thing to think about. So um, I find that interesting that it mentions their ages there. Uh, but what's interesting too, and we talked about this last week, uh, so you can listen back if you want, if you weren't here, about the idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And we, he kind of gives us a little bit of insight here when it says, because I want to lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my children by great acts of judgment. 
If Pharaoh's heart had not been hardened and he said, yeah, sure, just I don't need these slaves, go ahead. Then what, what sign is that to the children of Israel that their God is any stronger than the gods of Egypt? Because you have to remember, these people were born in slavery. They had been in slavery for over 400 years. They had known no life outside of being the slaves of the Egyptians and hearing of this God, El Shaddai, that had been passed down in the stories uh, you know, and the traditions that they had held dear as, you know, staying as the God of the Hebrews. But God needed to act on their behalf so that, and you'll see it over and over again in, in the first five books of the Bible, and you'll see throughout the Bible, we say, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. He has to remind the children of Israel of how powerful he is. And oftentimes, I know that I have to remind myself, and God, or God will, you know, he'll remind me gently or harshly sometimes that, I am the God who saved you. I'm the God who redeemed you. I'm the God who took you out of that mess that you were in. You have to be able to trust me in this situation that you're entering into or down the, down the road when you, you in, encounter a crossroads and you're not sure what to do. I got you through it then. I'm going to get you through it now. And we see that over and over again. So it's very important that we realize that even though we don't quite understand the fact that how God, you know, was it Pharaoh's decision to harden his heart? Was it God's decision for Pharaoh's heart to be hardened and for Pharaoh to have no choice in the matter? It was a combination of both, but we see over and over again, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then it says that his heart hardened itself. If you actually translate it literally, that's what it says. His heart was already hard and it continued to harden within itself. And then we see God saying, okay, you're going to continue to resist. So there you go. And he hands it off. And we we spoke last week about how important that is that we realize if Pharaoh's heart had not been hardened, then God would not have brought, uh, or the people of Israel would not have trusted God so that they would go into the promised land <clears throat> by these mighty acts, right? The miracles and stuff. And ultimately, the, they would reject God and then uh, by the hardening of the, the Israelites' heart, which we see later on, it says they couldn't enter into the promised land because their hearts were hard. Even though Pharaoh's heart was the reason that they were able to get out of Egypt, they had hard hearts, and it says they couldn't enter into that rest. We read that in Hebrews. So they were guilty of the very thing that Pharaoh was guilty of. But you know what? It's that we saw in Romans that God says because of their hardness of heart and their disbelief, the Gentiles are grafted in, and then we can be a light to God's children, Israel, which is really cool. And that was how it was always supposed to be. It says in Ephesians 3, <clears throat> the mystery of God that it was hidden in ages past was that the Gentiles would be co-heirs with the Jews as one church uh, and one body of Christ, which is really cool. So when we look at these things, we always have to remember to take a step back and look at the full panorama of Scripture. Because in, in you know, our narrow view of chapter 7, we're like, this seems weird. Why would God do this? We have to take a step back. We have the whole Bible. I know it's a big book, and we don't always read it in its entirety, or we may never have. Um, and even if we do, it takes so long that you kind of forget where you started, and you forget what you learned by the time you get to the end of it, and you have to start over again. It's one of the good things about it. Um, every time you read it, it's like you're reading it for the first time. So when we move in here, we see uh, verse 8, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. And we saw this uh, earlier in Exodus when Moses is like, how are they going to believe that you're sending me, God? And he does, he has Moses do this very thing. He says, what's that in your hand? And he says, it's a rod. 
And he says, throw it down on the ground. It turns into a serpent. Moses runs away. And then he says, take the, rod, take the serpent by the tail. becomes a rod again. And then when Moses came to the children of Israel, or the elders of Israel, he performed this sign to them to show that he was really God's deliverer. Now he's getting to do it. You know, he had a practice run. Then he had the dress rehearsal. And now he's doing it. This show night here. Pharaoh, he's standing right in front of him. And he says to, to Aaron, throw the staff down. Turn it into a serpent, which I think is interesting. The word serpent here is a little bit different than the other Old Testament word of serpent that we see, different than the one that's in the garden. It actually has to do with a great, if you see this word, um, it's, the, it's used what, talking about the great sea creatures, which is kind of interesting. I always picture a snake here, but the word actually talks about the, you know, when he talks about the great sea creatures that God created to fill the sea, it's actually that word, which is interesting. So maybe it was a giant uh, crocodile or, you know, we don't know, um, or Leviathan. We hear about that, this beast called Leviathan and stuff like that. So I'm not exactly sure what it turned into, but we know that the serpent is always a picture in the Bible of rebellion, which I find really interesting that God would use this staff and cast it down to turn into a serpent. Wouldn't it be like turned into a dove or turned into a cross or, you know, or turned into something that is a type of something good, a promise of something great that God uses as a type. So keep in mind, it's very interesting that it turns into a serpent here. And then as we go on, you would think Pharaoh would be like, whoa, what's going on here? How did he do that? This guy's magic. You know, as, as God said to Moses, I'm going to make you like a God to Pharaoh or like God, not like a God. Because you have to remember that the Egyptians had several deities, thousands probably, if you actually want to get into the nitpickiness of it. Um, I did a, a quick search on Wikipedia, you know, list of Egyptian deities. And it just was like, scroll down. Blah, blah, blah. And this one has this name, but it also could be called this depending on the month or whatever. You know, it's just crazy. Like they had so many so when Moses does something like this, he's, just, he's in essence kind of presenting himself as a deity to Pharaoh, at least in Pharaoh's mind. So if this had happened to you, I'm sure you'd be shocked, right? But Pharaoh's reaction is, is one that you wouldn't expect. It says, and he, uh, so as Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded, which we'll see that refrain over and over again in this. They did just as the Lord commanded, which is important because when God tells us to do something, we need to do it to the letter um, and it says, Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Your, uh, your translation may say enchantments, which the, the, the root word there is interesting. It, um, or, you know, the Hebrew word, it talks about flames. It's the same word. And I don't really know if there's any significance to this, but I just find it interesting because I don't know how they kind of come up with their translations and stuff because I don't know the language very well. It's the same word that's used when it talks about the flaming sword in the Garden of Eden, um, which we would never, I would never think of that. You're like, okay, what's this secret arts kind of thing? It's just interesting to me. Uh, You're going to see these patterns repeat because we know in the Garden of Eden, Satan presented himself as a serpent uh, and we see it over and over again in Revelation. It talks about that the dragon, the serpent of old, talking about Satan, how he was, you know, he rebelled and was cast out of heaven, and they they refer to him as that. And then we see these these words and these images kind of repeat over and over again. I find it really interesting. So Pharaoh just says, 
okay, that's really great. Guys, do the same thing. And they do. And I was reading in the Bible, not in Bible commentaries and stuff, and I try to read a, a lot of different perspectives because you never know. Everybody has a different view and all that stuff. And I don't want to become too uh, close-minded as far as is, um, only reading the same person and only getting their view on it because then you could be missing out on some good stuff. But one thing that really bothers me is when you read <laughs> things in commentaries like, um, it didn't mean that they actually did it. And I'm like, well, where did you get that? Because I read that they did do it. And then you read things, and it actually, I was surprised at some of the commentaries that did say that. And I, you know, whatever, they are, they're smarter than me, and they, they have PhDs and letters behind their name and stuff that I don't have. But it says, you know, it's, when it says that they did it, it was probably that they just kind of made it appear that way that they did it, but they didn't really do it. I'm like, I don't know, it says that they did. So how can that be? Because we don't see this stuff on a regular basis. At least I don't. Maybe you do. Maybe you have like a weird world that you, you hang out in and weird friends and stuff. And there's popping rabbits out of hats all the time. But um, how can this be the thing that God was going to use to show them that he was God? How are they able to replicate the exact same thing? It's weird, right? Like we read this and we go, but they're going to swallow them. So it's totally fine. And we don't have to address the fact that they can turn their rods into serpents as well. But it's very important that we see this because we're going to see at least with this and the first two plagues that they're able to do the exact same thing. And that's kind of scary because when we look at the supernatural, oftentimes we're very quick to say, I can't explain it. It must be God. And oftentimes we have to make sure that, you know, the Bible talks about you know, discerning and, and, and knowing, you know, the spirit that testifies that Jesus is the Christ, that, you know, any spirit that does not say that Jesus came in the flesh, you know, there's verses in the New Testament that talk about that. We have to be careful because oftentimes when we see these weird things, these phenomena that we can't explain, we have to see what, what's the purpose of it. We talk about how the, the, the signs and wonders come and follow the message of the Great Commission. Those signs and wonders are pointing to what? They're pointing to Jesus Christ, always pointing back to Jesus Christ. Once you see signs and wonders that are drawing attention either to the wonders themselves or to a person or to, hey, this, is, this cool thing is happening over here, you know, come over here. This thing's happening. It's always uh, dangerous. And we have to be, uh, you know, we have to believe, but we also have to have a right mind and wisdom from the Lord to be able to discern those things because, when you look at this, they, you know, I believe personally that they were, uh, either, there was an either a demonic event that was taking place that they were able to turn their staves into serpents. Um, you know, you can say that it, they, they like to say because the words mean flaming and then the root word means mystery or secret that they were just magicians. They had sleight of hand and it was illusions. One person actually said that I read that they were, um, Snakes that had been stunned or had been, uh, you know, basically comatose. And so they looked and appeared as though they were rods. Uh, and I'm serious. Like, you can find this stuff. It's like, it's legitimate people saying that kind of stuff. And I'm like, what's the point in, in tearing that? Are we afraid that God is not more powerful, that we have to make the enemy seem like this? Because if the enemy can really make these rods into serpents, then he's equal with God. No, because we're going to see exactly what happens. There's not a big sparring match that goes on. And, uh, you know, if you watch the movie, The Ten Commandments, there's a couple guys there and they're snakes. 
I tend to think there was probably 20 or 30 people here, you know, that there's just all these serpents. And I don't think it's like they're attacking each other and there's just this one super serpent that's just eating them all. It's just like one by one, he's just swallowing them, which is crazy if you read it. It says, For each man cast down a staff and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. I think it's funny that it says, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. It doesn't say the serpent that was Aaron's staff. So it's just kind of funny to read it that way. But if we look at this and we look at what the serpent represents, we see a great picture of the gospel here. We see a great picture of something that God was pointing to even here. And we see it, we'll see this appear again in the book of Numbers, which I don't, you know, I don't know where we're going after Exodus, but Numbers is a long way away. So I won't, I'll give you the spoiler if you're not familiar with the story. The children of Israel rebel against God when they're in the wilderness. Surprise, surprise. And then um, they, you know, they're like, oh, Egypt was better, blah, 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 blah. So these fiery serpents come up. God sends these fiery serpents and they bite the children of Israel. And they're dying and they're falling all over the place. And you're like, wow, God's really mad. This is crazy. And then God tells Moses, make a brass serpent and put it on a pole. And everybody who looks at the brass serpent will be healed. We're like, that's weird. Why is that? You know, and people probably didn't believe that that, why would they want to look at this brass serpent? That doesn't make any sense. This is the thing that bit me. This is the thing that's killing me. Why would I want to look at that up on a pole? It doesn't make any sense. So when we put those stories together, we see in the, the gospel of John, you guys know John 3.16. You could probably all quote it, right? Two verses before that, it says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. And then he talks about, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And then if you put that together with 2 Corinthians 5, when it says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We start to see a picture here. Jesus Christ became the very rebellious act of denying God or rejecting God on the cross. And by doing that was the serpent that was swallowing up all of that other nonsense and sin and all the effects of the enemy's uh, free reign over the world, free reign over the people of this world. We see the, you know, the, the serpent that's sent by God, essentially, devouring and, and, and conquering these other serpents. And there's a cool verse. Um, I'll, I'll turn there. I didn't put it in, uh, in verses in PowerPoint, so I apologize. But there's a verse in Isaiah, which I, I found, and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. I never would have thought of this. But um, you can make a note if you have a pen. Isaiah 25, verses 8 and 9. I'll just read it to you slowly. And it says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the salvation that God had promised even Jacob. I mean, even Abraham saying, you know, that the, the, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Your people are going to inherit this land a much later time from now. 
he comes and swallows up the effects of that rebellious nature that is first exemplified in the garden when the serpent comes and rebels against God and gets man and womankind to do the exact same thing, to raise themselves and exalt themselves up against God and to rebel. And Jesus comes and says, not only am I going to devour that and conquer that and consume that up in my holiness, but I'm actually going to be like, I'm going to become that so that those who are infected can look to me and get salvation and gain salvation, which I find really interesting because God could have done it a number of different ways. He could have just said, I win and just obliterated everything. But he chose to become the very thing that we were so eager to join in or, you know, to dive into that sin. You know, I read somebody, they kind of, they paraphrased the verse that I like, Second Corinthians 5. It says, he who knew no addiction became addiction so that the addict, the addict might become the righteousness of God in him. And when we put names and faces on those things, it becomes much more real. You know, whatever bite the serpent has had in your life, Jesus swallowed that up. He sucked out the poison. He actually became the, the poison so God could destroy it. He absorbed the wrath of God, which you know, I, I often will use this analogy. We think of, you know, uh, God being this, uh, I'm sorry, uh, we think of, if you picture, a, you know, someone getting beaten up, and we picture ourselves as the victim here, sins beating us up, right? This, this, the enemy is punching us in the face, and we picture Jesus going into our place as the victim, and, and sin is just pounding Jesus. The weird thing is, is that Jesus actually becomes the the, the fist that's doing the wrongful act. Is that weird? I find it really weird. And the reason he, he does that is the sin itself is what's punished, not the sinner. And Jesus doesn't die on the cross as a victim. He becomes victorious in his death on the cross. Um, that might not have made sense to you. I hope it did. But um, I have to remember that when I say that Jesus became sin, he became the very thing that separated us from God. That's why he said, why have you forsaken me? He didn't become a sinner the way we think of it. You know, like, yeah, Jesus is there in my sin, just partying. With, you know, he took on all the bad stuff. He became the very thing, that serpent, that, that heart of rebellion. He became that on the cross so that God could punish it completely and fully and punish sin separate from sinful mankind so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's why I think it's really interesting that the rod becomes a serpent, and the serpent then devours the other serpents. Anyway, let's move on. Um, verse 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. 
And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. We see that again. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. This part is really interesting to me as well, because we see this recurring theme here. Um, and what's, you know, I mentioned it earlier, but the, the judgments that we're going to see as we move on and the plagues, they are all a way of God exalting himself above the gods of Egypt. The Nile itself was seen as a god, and the, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. That's where they got all their water from. They're in Egypt, right? It's desert as we see it, as we picture it, as we know it to be. So the Nile River was their life-giving source. They worshipped it. There were gods over the Nile. Uh, there's one god that they actually claimed, I think his name was Osiris, and they said that his, the Nile was his bloodstream. You know, that, that the Nile coursed through his veins and he gave us life and we shared in that. And you see these things. It's such a corrupted version of what we believe of our God, right? There's this idea that the Nile, the river, the thing, the creation is the God, not the creator. And we see that theme over and over. Let's worship the thing because that's easier. It's, an, it's uh, you know, God will talk to the, the children of Israel and say, how can you cut down a tree, cook your food with the wood in the fire, and then make your idol out of the same wood that you use to, to cook your food and worship that idol? It doesn't make any sense. They're dumb. They're, they're, you know, they can't speak. They can't do anything. It's all, you know, essentially the life-giving source is me, is Jehovah. So Paul says that it's in him that we move and live and have our being. It's in God. So when we see him attack the Nile River, when we see the frogs come, when we see the lice and we see the pestilence and all this stuff, you can actually trace each single plague to one of Egypt's gods. And you might already know this, but it's, it's really interesting when you go through it because there's one god, I forget what his name is, it's like Hect or Hept or something like that, and he's a, a man's body with a frog's head. And we'll see the frogs come in a couple minutes. You know, we have the Nile. We also have um, the one God that is this Ra, the sun God. And we see the darkness that covers the entire land. It's God proving his preeminence over any other God. There are no other gods. God is the only one. It's not like our God is better and they have these other gods. There is no other gods. It's God alone. Everything else, as we've seen, we saw in the book of Acts, is demonic worship. Any other worship, of, any worship of something that's not God is a demon resting on that idol saying, worship me. It's the same rebellious attitude that Satan had it and uh, he brought into mankind in the garden. And that's the thing that we see when God swallows him up, you know, or as a serpent, he swallows up the other serpents. So, um, 
the cool thing is that this is the first plague is turning the water into blood. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, we know his first miracle is to turn the water into wine. And we see that in Jesus, there's the fulfillment. He absorbs the wrath of God, and we see the blood oftentimes in the Bible. And most of the time, it's a, it's a sign of judgment. You know, we see that, you know, the, the blood being poured out, uh, you know, as a ransom for any murder that's taken place, you know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, all that stuff. The blood being spilled was the sign of judgment, the, the blood sacrifices and stuff. So God is judging Pharaoh, judging the very uh, Nile River where Pharaoh had said, if you remember in Exodus 1, send all the male babies into the Nile, kill them all. So God is saying, I'm going to collect on that. Just like if you recall in, in, uh, in Genesis when it says that Abel's blood, he says it's, it's testifying against, you know, for vengeance. His blood cries up from the ground for vengeance. And when we look around at the world and we say, why is God allowing all this stuff to happen? You know, I can't answer that question. But what I do know is that for those that turn to Christ, all of this stuff that's happening was absorbed on the cross. But for those who don't turn to Christ, all that stuff is being stored up. And God will bring his wrath on those that don't turn to Jesus. So we, I can't really tell you all the ifs, ands, and buts about it. But what I do know is that God is not idle. God is not forgetful. And God keeps score of things. So when he says, I'm going to judge the Nile, he's making Pharaoh pay for the very thing that he did by throwing all of his children. And we saw that last week where he calls Israel his firstborn. The, the male children that were being born, being thrown into the Nile, God says, no. I'm not just going to take away, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit it where it hurts because they couldn't drink. If you've ever had, a, you know, a, a bloody wound or whatever, you know, and the smell of dried blood, has anybody ever smelled it? Or, you know, even if you get like, you get a bloody lip or something, you can kind of smell it and it's disgusting. The first two plagues are disgusting if you think about them. And it's, it's a very, it's a very uh, convenient way for God to show us what our rebellion is like to him and, and how important it is for us to understand what Christ really absorbed on the cross because it's a stench, you know? That's why it's interesting when it talks about how when Christ offered himself, it was a pleasing aroma to God because the sacrifice and the atonement of that sin is what pleases God. It, it overwhelms that stench of sin and becomes something sweet. So when we put our faith in the sacrifice of Christ, God is pleased by that very act. Um, there's actually, a, they used to sing hymns to the Nile. Um, there are old papyruses and stuff that you can actually look online. It's pretty cool. And one of the things was singing to the God of the Nile, and it said that his fragrance was sweet. So I think it's really interesting that when God attacks the Nile, it says that it stank. You know, I think that's pretty cool. God has a sense of humor, even though this is kind of heavy material. I think there's some humor kind of running through it a little bit. But what I think is funny, and you'll see this over and over again, is like, why would the magicians try to make more blood out of water? I never understand that. And you would think that if they really had this supernatural power, that they would try to turn it back, right? And I read someone, and it was really profound. It said, the enemy can never create something that would bring benefit to mankind. It can only replicate something that was intended to be good for mankind, to corrupt mankind. 
And that was a very loose paraphrase, but the, the, the message is, is true. You see, he can't create, he can only replicate. And what he does is he distorts it. He takes something that God had done and distorts it. I mean, obviously what God had done here was judge the Nile, but the, the demonic spirits, they can't say, hey, let's turn it back. Let's overthrow God, right? No, they can just say, hey, we can do that too. But I'm sure Pharaoh wasn't like, oh, good, more blood. You know, Bloody Marys had not been invented yet. This was not a drink of choice that anybody had. Um, but we'll see it again with the frogs. You know, it's just crazy. I don't understand why they're so uh, bent on proving that they can do it too. Um, so let's move through chapter 8, the first section here. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into the house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on your servants. So it's not like there's going to just be frogs passing by and it's like, oh, there's another frog, ribbit, ribbit. He says it's going to be in your bedroom, on your bed, in your ovens, in your kneading bowls. It's going to be everywhere, pervasive everywhere. And the funny thing is, is that the frogs were worshiped as God because of the hept or whatever his name was. So they actually weren't allowed to kill the frogs. So they were getting everything that they loved. This God, this worship, this idolatry was coming in droves. You would think they would be so happy. Like, oh, cool. You know, because when we think of God and we worship God and we say, God, we want more of you, right? And we're pleased by that. Their God, they got more of him. And God said, yeah, sure, you want frogs? Here, frogs. I mean, I can't, if something happens when I'm asleep, I can't sleep, you know? I have my little sound maker on my alarm clock and there's like rainforest sounds. And every once in a while, there's a little ribbit just in the little sound machine, if you guys have those, you know? Can you imagine just all night, every night, over and over again, the sound of thousands and thousands of frogs stepping out of bed and... Or, I don't know what sound they would make. I came home on a New Year's Eve uh, after playing. And uh, my, I live in a farmhouse and there's probably, there's holes in, in people. My cats can get outside without the doors being open. They can get inside. That's all I know. I don't know where the holes are, but hey, it's cheap rent. But um, I came in with, uh, uh, you know, it's dark because I play, played on New Year's Eve. And uh, I see my cat just laying there. And they're really proud when they catch things. I don't know if anybody you any of you have cats to catch things, but they bring it to you as an offering. Like they, you're their God and they bring a sacrificial animal to you. And uh, so I'm just walking and I had taken my shoes off and I just step and I feel something. And as soon as I feel it, I kind of did one of those recoil things. I didn't put my full weight on it. So I was like, oh man, I put the light on a dead mouse right there. I look at the bottom of my foot. There's a little bit of blood on it. And I'm just like, this is the worst thing ever. But you get used to it when it happens two or three times. Um, which unfortunately it has. Um, but imagine that frogs just everywhere, stepping on everything. And they're just like, oh, these frogs, I can't get rid of them. And the Lord said to Moses, it says, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. They're making it worse. 
Which is interesting because I think oftentimes when, when, things, when we're causing things to happen, you know, if we're wandering from the Lord or we're doing things and, and we just we have those feelings and those doubts and all those things, oftentimes our error is we go to the world to comfort us or to come up with the solution for how we feel rather than going back to God when God is using that very experience to bring us back to him. So we see these frogs and God's saying, this is judgment towards the way... Egypt has treated my people, instead of Egypt saying uncle and going, okay, God, your God is way more powerful, they're starting to create more frogs. It just doesn't make any sense. When we do that, oftentimes we, we go headlong into sin because we can't get over that guilt. We can't get over that, uh, you know, whatever that depression is that we kind of just dive headlong and we start to create more frogs for ourselves thinking that's going to solve the problem. Maybe we can be like Moses and Aaron and we'll create one super frog that will eat up all the other frogs like they did with their rod. I don't know what they were thinking, but they were like, oh, we got it, frogs. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So the blood in the water was not enough. But the frogs, they must have been really bad because this is what he makes Pharaoh say uncle, even though it's only for a short time. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. So what's interesting is this is a fulfillment of what God said about Moses. He said, you're going to be a God to Pharaoh. He's going to Moses to intercede on his behalf. He's not going directly to God. He's saying, Moses, plead to God for me, Jehovah, this, this God of yours. And this is one of the most astounding verses in the Bible. And he said, Pharaoh, tomorrow. So when Moses says, okay, I'll, I'll command God to plead. When do you want the frogs to be gone? And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. I would have said yesterday. <laughs> you know, it's, oftentimes we, we don't realize that God has given us a blank check in, in, in terms of how we can be free from this self-inflicted depression or self-inflicted sin or whatever it may be. And God's saying, you have the ticket out. You have the way out. When do you want to be free? We say, mm, tomorrow. Right? I've done it. I'm not standing up here as though it's not me I'm talking to. We delay. And God's like, it's already done. Let's go. You know? And I, you know, I'm stretching it a little bit because we're talking about Pharaoh here. But what continues on is interesting is that God honors it. He says, okay, tomorrow. So he does it. <clears throat> be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. So you have blood smell, and then you have dead frog smell, which when we first moved into our house, this is another side note, the house started to stink and we didn't know what it was. So we're like, oh no, the animals probably got, you know, they probably got some dead animals somewhere. Maybe it's in the walls, we don't know. So we were moving everything around and we lifted up our couch and there was just this dead bloated uh, animal. I forget what it was, a vole or a mole or a mouse or something like that. And you're just like, oh, and you just want to get it out there and you're Febrezing the whole house and opening the windows and all that stuff. What is interesting here is that it doesn't just, the frogs don't just disappear. 
they die, right? And then it, they ha- the people of Israel have to stack it and gather it together in heaps to get rid of it. So uh, what, what I take from that verse, and, and this is where we're going to end tonight, but uh, when the Bible talks about us being dead to sin, it, um, it's very easy for us to say, woohoo, I don't have to worry about it anymore. And it's true. Like, ultimately, we're not, guilt- you know, not going to be held guilty for the sin in our life. Um, you know, Jesus ignored the penalty of it. But when we throw up our hands and say, doesn't matter what I do, I'm forgiven. God says, what about putting on Christ? You know, we see all these verses and these encouragements say, put off the old man, right? Put off the old dead man. The the man is dead, but we decide to wear that corpse sometimes. It doesn't make any sense. And God's like, what are you doing? What are you doing leaving the stack of frogs in your your bathroom? You know, like, why is this still here in your life? And it's an encouragement to say, I've done it all. Now you just need to take it on yourself. Put on Christ. He's here to be put on. You know, I find that as an encouragement. And this isn't a reminder to me that even though God has done the work and it's completed and finished, he allows me to clean house. He allows me to get joy when I say, get out of here and to, to just throw those frogs out. It's fun. You know, you burn the magazines or you flush, uh, you know, Chuck's not here, but flush the, the whiskey down the toilet. When, you, when God says you're free from alcohol, you're free. But you don't leave the alcohol sitting around in your house saying, hey, I don't need it. No, you clean house. And that was a testimony of God, even to the Egyptians saying, you know, I've done the work. You have the opportunity to co-labor with me to clean house so that it never has to be a part of your life again. Will you take me up on this? You know, so when we talk about it, it's not that this work is not making the frogs deader. It's not killing the frogs by cleaning out the frogs, right? They're already dead. Just like our old man and our old life is dead. God did that and he's given us a new life. But he also calls us to clean up. Um, It's not to earn God's grace or earn God's favor. It's to make us walk out the new identity that we have. And um, I I find that really uh, encouraging. And and it is is fun. And I encourage us all to take up the broom, (laughs) take up the mop you know, as an act of worship to God, not as a way of paying God back, because anything that we do that is good is from God anyway. John Piper said, uh, by, we don't pay God back by doing good works. We, we indebt ourselves further to God by doing good works, because it says that it was by his grace that he gave us works to do. So it's all a gift from him. So instead of thinking that you earn yourself back into God's favor, we actually indebt ourselves further to God by even doing good things to, in, to begin with, which I think is really cool. And then, unfortunately, Pharaoh didn't agree with me. It says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. One final note is um, people like to attack these plagues and say, oh, they're natural things, nothing you know, it just so happened that when Moses was talking, the Nile overflowed and there was this algae that was red and it all died at the same time and made the water a reddish color. And that's what Moses thought was blood. And they go on and on and you read it and you're like, okay, if that was true, isn't it amazing how God miraculously made it happen the moment that, that Moses raised his staff? You know, like people want to get into those kinds of arguments. 
and say, uh, miracles? No. But you know what? I read the Bible and I see miracles all throughout it. And the most important miracle is the fact that Jesus raised from the dead. And if we don't believe that the Nile could have been turned to blood and that frogs could have been out the wazoo in Egypt, then we have to also be open to the possibility that we're doubting the very faith that we put our heart, you know, we put our heart and soul into. So it's very important that I think C.S. Lewis said, the mind that asks for a non-miraculous faith is uh, one that's asking for mere religion. Because when we rob God of his miracle-working power, um, you know, we're, we're doubting everything that we, we base our faith on. And then someone can come along and start to use their logic and reason that is worldly and, and shipwreck our faith. So I encourage you to take the Bible for what it says and to always be thinking, if I don't understand it, it's because God is higher than me. And it's not because God is too small that I am trying to tackle all his great wisdom. It's God, show me how this makes sense because it doesn't make sense to me, but I know that you're higher than me. And I know that you come from a place where the miraculous is the norm. So teach me you know, how to put this faith and this, this um, trust in your miraculous power into practice every day in my life. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord. I know I'm bouncing around a lot. I pray that uh, the truth stuck and um, that we can be edified, Lord, by these things that were written for our learning, as Paul said, that we would not follow in the same path of doubt and we would not stay enslaved when you've already made the way out, Lord. You've already redeemed us. Um, Help us to have the courage to clean house in any area that might need be. In Jesus' name, amen.